It's worth knowing what's really going on. This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. This is Access Atlanta. Every week, we share some of the best places to eat, play, and live out loud in the ATL. And, of course, we go behind the scenes and find the stories that show Atlanta is one of a kind. Welcome to Access Atlanta. I'm your host, Shane Harrison. We've changed the way we do our podcast. That means we're recording it remotely from our homes, but we've also changed what we're talking about in the podcast, since we've always prided ourselves on providing guidance on things to do in and around Atlanta, and because most venues, theaters, and attractions are closed, we're going indoors, and in some cases where it's practical, outdoors to places where it's easy to practice social distancing. From his first top 10 country hit in 1989, Country Club, through a spate of number ones, including Any More, Can I Trust You With My Heart, Foolish Pride, and Here's a Quarter, Call Someone Who Cares, and dozens of other fan favorites, Travis Tritt has been a defining voice in country music. On May 7th, Tritt released Set in Stone, an album that should appeal to both new fans and those who appreciate the loyalty that the Marietta-born Tritt professes to his roots. Melissa Ruggieri recently visited Tripp for a chat about his career, his life, and the new album. And she's here to bring us that conversation. Welcome, Melissa. Hey, Shane. So this is uh, pretty cool that you got to actually go visit with Travis Tripp. We don't get that as much lately, you know? No, we don't. And, you know, it was an interesting way it turned out. They initially asked if I wanted to do a story, you know, interview with Travis, because this was the first album he was going to be releasing since 2007, the first studio album. So it was kind kind of a big deal. And I realized, you know, we really haven't profiled him in a very long time, at least since the 10 years that I've been here. And I said, you know, is there any chance we could do this in person rather than on the phone? I, I, you know, I, of course, very cognizant of COVID protocols and all that kind of stuff. And this was back in, this was in February. And they said, you know, actually he's doing a media day in Nashville. Would you be willing to come out to that? So I checked with our editor and she said, yeah, that's fine. If you want to go to Nashville, you know, just overnight kind of thing and talk to Travis. Well, that turned out to be the day of the ice storm that came through the South. And <laughs> it was the day before. And yeah. there went Travis's trip to Nashville and my trip to Nashville as well. And he got with the publicist and said, you know, I'm going to go back to that. Na- he was going back to Nashville later that week, but I was going to be out of town. And he said, if, if she wants to come up to the house in Powder Springs, that's totally cool. We could, you know, we could do something in the studio. So Tyson, our videographer and I, you know, said, okay, sure. That sounds like a good plan to go up to Travis Tritt's house. So that is what we did. And he's been on this 
same property since 1992. It's 75 acres, I believe. And, you know, there's this beautiful house, but then probably about a football field away from that is, he calls it his studio, but it's not a recording studio. There's there's no recording booth or anything in there. It's basically his office slash writing room slash place where he stores a lot of guitars. Right. <laughs> you know, it's just it's just a cool, cozy kind of place. And that's where we sat for, we were there about two hours actually. And what was cool about it is if I had gone to Nashville, he was doing other press that day. So I probably would have gotten 20 minutes in an antiseptic ballroom in some hotel with him. Whereas being home with him, he was really generous and gracious with his time. We were both really surprised when we walked out of there, like, wow, that actually went much better than, you know, we could have ever expected just because he spent so much time with us talking about so many different things. And at one point Tyson asked him if he would, you know, just take down a guitar just so he could get some pictures of him holding one of his vintage guitars. And he just started singing a song for us. He started singing his new single, Smoke in the Bar. And we weren't expecting that to happen either, but it was one of those moments where you go, good thing the tape is rolling. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's great. I love it when things, you know, don't work out and they work out better. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And And it really was, you know, one of those things. And yeah, the plate where he lives, I, I actually drove by it, even though the GPS was telling me to turn. I kept driving because there's a, it's gated as it should be. And what's cool, though, is it's gated with a T. <laughs> so uh-huh. there's like a, a T embedded in, in the gate uh, right. or two T, actually two T's, which would make more sense. Right. But it's, you know, he, he lives, as he said, he never wants to leave Atlanta. He never wants to leave Georgia. He's been here his whole life. He told us so many great stories of when he was first starting out and working in, you know, an air conditioning type store that, you know, he was doing manual labor, that kind of thing. And the guy who ran the store had wanted to be a musician way back in the day. So when Travis decided he was going to go buy a guitar and start playing out these little places around town, you know, his boss was very cool about letting him leave a little earlier, come in a little late or that kind of thing, because he said, you know, man, this is, you know, you, you got to do this. If you don't do it now, you're not going to do it. So he's got so much history here and said that one of the things that even keeps him here now is he could take a drive downtown and just so many memories come flooding back no matter where he is in the metro Atlanta area that the thought of never being here is just something that he can't even digest and plus his family you know he raised his family here he's got three kids two of them are in music and he's trying to you know mentor them as much as he can while also giving them his own space his daughter Tyler Reese goes out on the road with him quite a bit actually. And his son, Tristan has a band that he said is a bit like a Blackberry smoke kind of thing with the, you know, the Southern rock influences yeah. more than country. But what we you know really seem to talk about the most is this new album set in stone that was named by Brent Cobb, who is Dave Cobb's cousin, Dave Cobb, the very well-known producer who is from right. Georgia. I talked to Dave for this story too, because Dave produced Travis's album. This is the first time they had ever worked together, but Dave wanted Travis to work with other writers for probably the first time in his career, or at least, you know, in a very long time. And one of the writers he put him with was his cousin, Brent, who is a a wonderful songwriter in his own right and released his own, uh, I think his fourth album last year and just a really sweet guy. And Brent came down to Travis's studio, same place where we were talking to write. And just in conversation, he said to Travis, you know, I, I, I'm not even sure, you know, at this point in your career, you have nothing to, to prove that your, your legacy is set in stone. And Travis really liked the sound of 
that phrase. And he also said he was very humbled by the fact that <laughs> a young guy would say that about him. But yeah. he thought, OK, you know what? This sounds like a great idea for a song. And so it turned into a song on the album and then, of course, turned into the title track of the album. I mean, the, the title of the album. And it really does define, I think, where he is at this point in his life. You know, it's not about the radio play. He said he has no expectations of country radio playing anything from this album. Although I got to tell you, it's a really strong album. And all those things that make Travis Tritt, Travis Tritt, that combination of country and soul and Southern rock and blues, that's all in there. And it is a bit of a throwback to that more muscular sound that I think, you know, people in the nineties, especially remember hearing you know, don't forget, Travis comes from that class of 89, which yeah. was him, Garth Brooks, Alan Jackson and Clint Black. And the four of them all ascended at the same time and just created this boon in country music. And I don't really think, you know, I, I don't think we've seen anything quite that big at the same time from four like minded kind of guys yeah. <laughs> since then. And yeah. he just, you know, he just represents what traditional country is with a bit of that outlaw spirit, you know, that, that he's got, but you, you know, I mean, you, you, you might have your own perceptions of what Travis might be like, but he really was just very sweet and very happy to chat and very forthcoming about a lot of things. And, you know, I, I just really appreciated the amount of time that he gave us and his willingness to, you know, show us some of his guitars and just kind of hang out for a couple of hours. So yeah, it really worked out well. Yeah, that's great. And we should remind folks that there is video. Uh, you can go to AJC.com and check out the video from, from the chat. And also Melissa's story is on the Atlanta music scene blog. Yes. Um, and, it, and in that video, you will hear him performing Smoke in a Bar. <laughs> right. And with that, why don't we uh, go to your conversation with Travis Tritt? Thanks so much, Melissa. Thank you. started asking me before we actually started working on this album when they knew that we were going back in the studio mm -hmm. I had a lot of people ask me well what kind of album is it going to be and is it going to be really straight ahead country or is it going to be more bluesy or is it going to be more what is it going to be and I said well it's just going to be a Travis Tread album and I'm going to try to incorporate all of the different things that I've always done into that album, which I have to show my first love, which is the straight ahead country, traditional country. I love that. That's always been my center. But 
I was also just as much influenced by Leonard Skinner, the Allman Brothers, um, that type of Southern rock, um, and then heavily influenced by blues, you know, people like Muddy Waters and B.B. King and later on Clapton and uh, Jimi Hendrix, people like that, um, um, Stevie Ray Vaughan, mm -hmm. huge, huge influences. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I love bluegrass. I, I grew up obviously loving bluegrass, going to bluegrass festivals with my uncle. In Marietta? Uh, all over the South. Yeah. All over the South. And um, take all that and then sprinkle a little bit of Southern gospel over the top of it. And that's pretty much my influences. So I've always tried to show a little bit of all of those different influences anytime I do an album. Yeah. Even though I really had, I had recorded, you know, some live albums and I'd done some, some things like that, but I hadn't been back in the studio because I was more focused on just doing the touring. Right. We you were got the hits. You got the catalog. Exactly. Um, my manager, um, he really got me to thinking about, okay, look, you're at a point in your career where you really don't have anything to prove, but you still have the opportunity to draw in new people and also feed your audience that's been with you for a long, long time by just providing content. And um, that really made me start thinking about recording a new album for the first time in a very, very long time. As you've been out doing some shows, <clears throat> have you felt comfortable enough in the places that you've been going that, you know, you're okay? I mean, I know some have been solo, so I guess that yes. makes things a little bit easier. <laughs> yeah, when the most of the shows we've done have been solo acoustic, um, and we've tried to do, in every one of them, we've tried to do, you know, social distancing, you know, masks if they're required, um, but, Sometimes, even though the best, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, you know, when you have an audience that is hungry for live music and they've been cooped up for that long, sometimes it's very difficult, even though you have the restrictions in place and all these different things. I know we did a, we did a, um, a drive-in show in Athens last year. Oh, was that with the new amphitheater? Yes, where, where it's being built. Right, right, yes, right. correct. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, we went to great lengths to, we went out, we drew out mm -hmm. in the parking lot, you know, a 14 foot space around each vehicle. And people were supposed to bring their lounge chairs out and do that. And of course, by the end of the show, there's no way that you're gonna be able to keep those people that are so hungry for that. I mean, they were coming right down to the mm -hmm. to the front and you know, it, it it it's difficult for an artist to deal with that because you realize that, you know, okay, we we are, you know, COVID is definitely a real thing and it's something that you worry about for your audience members. But at the same time, you realize that they are so hungry for this music and so hungry for, because nothing takes the place of live no. music. The biggest reason I got involved in this business in the first place was because I absolutely love 
the whole idea of spreading my music to as many people as possible in a live venue performance. There's nothing like that. It's like a, it is exactly energy. It's a, it's a big ball of energy that I've described as, it's like a beach ball that gets kicked back and forth between the stage and the audience. And the more fired up they get, the more fired up we get as performers. And it's, uh, you know, I've done a bunch of different drugs in my life. And there is nothing that comes close to that, really. I mean, it's, it's just a great, great experience. And it's, it is truly that. It's more than just going and listening to music. It's truly, live concerts are truly an experience. And they're things that people remember for the rest of their lives. With these shows that you've been doing, have you been playing any of the new stuff? Or I, I know it's kind of, you know, you just released the first single last fall and then now the second single mm -hmm. next week, I think, and then yes. the album's May. Um, but have you been kind of given a little sneak peek? Of I have. As a matter of fact, I just, uh, I did uh, two shows in Kentucky uh, last weekend. And uh, that was the first time, they were solo acoustic, but I, it was the first time that I had done uh, smoking a bar. Mm -hmm. And... I announced it, of course, you know, I told people I had new album coming out and uh, the next single was going to be this. And every time that I've ever done that throughout my career, I've always noticed that if you play a song, if you tell people you're going to play a song off the new album that they haven't heard, they tend to listen more intently and they're, they're more moved by it. Because they're getting a special exactly. sneak peek. Exactly. Exactly. And when I got to that line about um, when we saw the flag flying, we all gave a damn, the crowd just erupted both nights. So that's always a good sign. I use that to kind of gauge what, where the song is going to go and what, the, what it's going to do. And I think it really talks about a lot of the things that, one of the reasons I fell in love with the song the first time I heard it was because I, I've heard for the last probably 10, 15 years with regards to country music. I've heard people say, man, it would be nice if country music sort of told the stories that it used to tell or that country music sounded more like country music rather than pop music. Um, and I hear that everywhere I go. I, I get it all the time on social media. I get it from people in person. And then I think with all the things that have happened in the past year, there's been a lot of people that are sort of nostalgic for the, the, the days when there was, wasn't so much division and uh, unrest uh, in our country. And so I think that's where this song really comes into play as far as it talks about all this. It's just talking about Man, wouldn't it be nice if the world moved a little bit slower than what it seems to be moving right now? And um, I think a lot of people are going to be able to relate to that. At least I hope so. Well, and, you know, in Stand Your Ground, mm -hmm. which I, I thought might have been about something else until I listened to it. And I was like, oh, this is really just more about being yourself. Yes. Sta standing your personal ground as, a, as, you know, who you are, mm -hmm. who you've become, who you're going to, you know, remain. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. And when listening to that, it made me think of 
how, you know, there are these young guys out there like, you know, Morgan and Luke sure. Holmes and, and, you know, and you're someone who's been doing this for three decades, mm-hmm. you know, you and the class of 89. You know? Yes. And when you look at those new guys, you know, what would you say to them as far as remaining true to who they are, like navigating that path between, you know, remaining true to who you are, but then also you've got an audience that, you know, might want to hear what you have to say, but also might not, you know? Sure. I, I think it's it's all about, um, well, I, I can just relay my personal experience. When I was first getting started, the first two, three singles that I did were big records and they did extremely well and they fit into that country music mold. And then I came out, I think my fourth single was a song called Put Some Drive in Your Country, which had all these rock guitars on it and it lent itself more to the Southern rock influence that I had. And man, they, I took all kinds of grief for that because Radio didn't like it. It's too rock for country. Um, he's he's trying to be something that that we don't accept, or he's trying to be something that he's not, or this, that, and the other. And then they they called me all these different names. They said, "Well, he's he must be hard to get along with. He must be a rebel, uh, a renegade." Um, uh, some of them just actually came out and said it. He must must be an asshole, and. Um, then they hit me with the one that, that stung the worst, and that was outlaw. And everybody used that word outlaw in a very negative connotation. It wasn't meant as a, as a tribute to the outlaws that had come before me. And I was really starting to get self-conscious about it. It was really starting to, uh, to bother me until I met Waylon Jennings. And when I met Waylon Jennings... I met him at the Omni in Atlanta. We were doing a show together. And uh, I met him backstage. And as I was getting ready to leave, I was the last one. I had a small group people with me. And as I was getting ready to leave, I put my hand on the doorknob and he said, Hoss, wait a minute. I want to talk to you for a sec. Come here. And I, me? And he calls me back in. He said, sit down. I want to talk to you for a second. He said, I've been hearing all the things that they've been saying about you in the press and uh, at radio and some of the record labels in Nashville. He said, let me just tell you this. He said, all of the, all the things that they're saying about you is exactly the same things that they said about me and about Willie Nelson and Johnny Cash and Hank Williams Jr. and Chris Christopherson and David Allen Coe, and all these other people. And he said, let me ask you this. Are your records still selling? And I said, yeah, they're selling very well. He said, good. He said, people still coming to see your shows? I said, yes, sir, every one of them are sold out. He said, that's all that matters. He said, remember this. He said, all these people that are saying these things about you in a negative way, they get their music for free. He said, the people that matter, should matter to you, are the people that go out and work hard 40, 50, 60 hours a week, every week, to put food on the table for their families. And they're willing to spend a certain amount of that money 
that hard-earned money to go out and buy your music and occasionally pay for concert tickets when you come into their town to play live. He said, as long as those people are responding, these other people don't matter. And I thought, man, it was like, my mind exploded then. It was an epiphany because he was exactly right. And so I told that story to uh, Channing Wilson and uh, Wyatt Durrett when we wrote, before we wrote Stand Your Ground. And both of those guys said, man, we got to write that. We've got to write that because that's such a great story. So that song is basically directed at the Nashville establishment, the record labels, all these people that try to claim they have a crystal ball and that they know exactly how to do this. And they come out and sign these artists. Oh, we love what you do. We love what you're doing. And as soon as they get them signed, okay, now we want you to change this or change that. And that's always been something that I think any artist that wants to do things their own way, and especially if you've had the opportunity to play in bars and clubs and, and like I did for so long, you know who your audience is and you know what they will and will not accept from you as an artist. So if you've got that already, then you don't really need somebody to come in and try to change your program. Just stick with that. And I know it's difficult to do. It's like swimming upstream. But at the end of the day, I think uh, artists that have the uh, tenacity to be able to do that are the artists that tend to last longer because they're not affected by fads or trends or whatever. That's just, here. I, here's who I am accept it or not, and but this is me, and I'm not going to be something that I'm not. I'm going to be honest, and I'm going to be truthful with you, which, if you think about it, that's really what country music has always been, is three chords in the truth. Kenny Rogers told me years ago his definition of success, and I've always kind of hung on to that because it's, it's very, very... Uh, understandable and it's relatable to me and he said success is doing something not because you have to but because you want to and that means so much for somebody like me because if I didn't love the music as much as I do I don't have to do this I mean I could I could have retired a long time ago, but retirement is not in my vocabulary. I I can't imagine, what am I going to do? Sit on a front porch somewhere in a rocking chair and watch the world go by? Well, I guess you got a little taste of that this past year. I mean, what what did you do? Yeah, it's, yeah. Trust me, I don't like it. It's not, it's not in my nature. I was born to be out on the road and touring and doing what I do, which is entertaining people and bringing the music to as many people as I possibly can. So I've seen um, some artists, I've known some artists in my years that they are still doing it simply because they have to. They've got bills they still have to pay and, and they're doing it because they, not necessarily because they really want to. And uh, I... I remember I'm 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 going to relate a story uh, 
very famous artist who is no longer with us uh, that I met not long before he died, or actually I, I'd already known him, but I went to uh, a show. Uh, he was playing at a casino that I was playing out west uh, the night before I was, and we got in early. And I went up to him backstage, and I said, before the show, and I said, so how's everything going? And he said, same old, different day. And I realized that he was really not out there because he loved it, necessarily. He was out there because kind of felt like he had to. And that's not, and this is one of the most, in my mind, one of the most successful artists in country music history. So um, I would never want to get to that place. If I did, I'd quit. If I ever got to the point to where it, it was just so much of a, more of a burden to me than it was actually exciting and invigorating and thrilling to be able to go out and play music for people. So my, my, my definition of success is doing it for the love of doing it. And I, that's another thing too I tell a young artist all the time, if you are trying to get into the business with the ultimate goal of being rich and famous, I don't give you very much hope for having a career, certainly not a career that's going to have any longevity to it. But if you get into it because you just absolutely love the music, you love what music did to you when you were growing up, and you want to just pass that along, and you have the talent, enough talent to be able to carry that forward, move other people with music the way that music moved you when you were younger. Uh, if, that's your, if that's your goal, those are the people that I give a lot of credit to that are I think are going to have a long-lasting career, and they'll never work a day in their life because they're doing what they absolutely love to do, and that's me. And I've been very, very lucky in that regard. They say we've come a long way. I say it's a little bit too far. From when the world turned slower and you could smoke in the bar. going to be so jealous <laughs> when I tell them. We got our own private Travis Tritt song. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you for doing you that. That, that sounded great. On the heels of a well-received indie film, Standing Up, Falling Down, in February, Billy Crystal directed and co-stars in a new comedy with Tiffany Haddish called Here Today. Crystal plays a successful veteran comedy writer, Charlie Burns, suffering from early-onset dementia, who starts an unlikely friendship with a free-spirited New York City street singer, Emma Page. Rodney Ho spoke with Crystal about the movie and his co-star. You'll find that interview on the Radio and TV Talk blog at AJC.com. 
State Farm Arena recently hosted its first big non-sports shows since the pandemic began, featuring Mike Epps and several other stand-up comics. The four shows on May 7th and May 8th were held at greatly reduced capacity with 3,000 people per show, but it was yet another sign that Atlantans are increasingly willing to go out and be entertained amid strangers. Comedy clubs and theaters are taking varying degrees of caution. Buckhead's The Punchline Comedy Club, which normally seats 200, is holding at just 30% capacity. Midtown Comedy Club, The Laughing Skull Lounge, which reopened at a reduced capacity in February and seats just 80, is going to allow a full crowd to its Best of Atlanta comedy shows by early June, with masks optional. It's currently allowing half capacity. Find out what other clubs and venues are doing as comedy returns in Rodney Ho's story on the radio and TV talk blog at AJC.com. Atlanta Symphony Orchestra conductor Robert Spano is staying around for another year to welcome audiences back to Symphony Hall. Instead of taking a sabbatical after stepping down as music director after 20 years at the helm, he will help lead the ASO during its 77th season, which starts September 19th. Though the hall will be open for in-person listening this fall, the ASO is still finalizing audience capacity and protocols. Virtual broadcasts of ASO concerts will continue. Find out more at AJC.com. Over the past 21 years, Stacey Abrams has published eight romance novels under the name Selena Montgomery. Her first novel, Rules of Engagement, was written while she was a law student at Yale. The following seven were penned during a career that spanned to tax attorney, deputy Atlanta city attorney, business owner, and state house minority leader. While running for governor and after a loss to now Governor Brian Kemp, Abrams wrote two nonfiction books, and she has continued working on a children's book and a teen superhero novel while advocating for voter rights and equitable economic development with her organizations Fair Count, Fair Fight Action, and the Southern Economic Advancement Project. Read Rosalind Bentley's interview with Abrams following the recent publication of Wild Justice Sleeps, the first fiction book published under her name. Find it at AJC.com. To get the AJC delivered or to subscribe to the e-paper, go to AJC.com slash subscribe. For more things to do in and around Atlanta, go to AJC.com. Our senior editor is Nicole Smith. The podcast is edited by Tyson Horn. The theme music is by Bo Emerson and Billy Guin, and I'm your host, Shane Harrison. Join us next week for more Access Atlanta.